This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by the book Letting Go, How I Failed Gay Conversion Therapy and Learned to Love Myself by Aaron Simnowitz. In this book, I take the reader on my journey as I navigate the controversial divide between the evangelical church and homosexuality. At 19 years old, my Christian faith and obedience to Jesus was the most important thing in my life. However, my attraction to other males tested my loyalties, as I believed I only had two choices, either choose Jesus and deny my sexuality, or choose my sexuality and denounce Jesus. In letting go, I hold no punches as I explicitly tell my story with relentless vulnerability, showcasing the emotional pain, anguish, and frustration, yet humorously engaging the reader simultaneously. This book gives readers just one example of a life that was tortured by gay conversion therapy and how it is possible to come out on the other side of self-acceptance. You can pick up this book at Amazon.com right now. Hey folks, this is Mark Gregory Karras, licensed therapist and the author of The Diabolical Trinity. Take a seat. Relax. Smell that tantalizing fragrance. Let's listen in and taste that smooth second cup, delivered by one of the finest theological baristas in town, my friend Keith. Hello and welcome to Second Cup with Keith. I am your host, Keith Giles, and I guess I probably should say welcome back to Second Cup with Keith because we took a little bit of a hiatus there, a little break. Um, I did kick around the idea of maybe just not continuing the blog. Um, because I've been very busy lately. Uh, some of you may or may not know, but um, in January of 2023, um, I and Matthew DiStefano, another author at Choir, became the co-owners of Choir Publishing and uh, taking on the extra workload of not just writing and marketing my own books. Now I'm, uh, you know, evaluating and uh, you know we're, we're publishing and helping to promote and market other people's books. With choir, which has been really exciting, but as you can imagine, takes up a lot of time. Um, however, I honestly got so much great feedback from people, to be honest. So many, many people um, reached out and told me how much they love the podcast. Uh, many people said it's their the favorite thing that I do compared to like, you know, my my blog or my books or my other podcasts and things like that. And I'll be look, I'll be honest, I really love doing this podcast. <clears throat> I've always wanted to have a podcast um, where you know, I could just sit, literally just sit down with a microphone and a, a warm beverage and um, just talk about things that are on my mind and really address questions and um, challenges that I know many people have because many of you send me direct messages. I get comments, emails, uh, private messages from people all the time on the different social media platforms that I'm on, which is, I think, pretty much all of them, all of the major ones. And quite often they will ask me questions about things and I do my best to answer them. I know that there's always, well, I should say most of the time behind the question is a very real, you know, layer of anxiety or fear um, or struggle, you know, like that people, people um, ask me things like, you know, the Bible or things about theology typically because um, they really are wrestling with it. And it is something that, really concerns them. So um, anyway, yeah, all, for all those reasons, um, I decided to bring it back. And I guess one of the other reasons is um, Choir, our publishing company, Choir, um, has started a really great partnership with Patheos. The, uh, now, I blog on Patheos, Matthew DiStefano, and several other Choir authors 
also blog on Patheos. And it's a great platform. Um, I'm very, very, very much appreciate Patheos for hosting my blog and promoting my blog posts and things like that. But um, Matthew and I have had meetings with Patheos. Uh, we're working on a book together, which I can't wait to tell you about. Uh, this should be out hopefully by the end of the year. Um, that's going to be a super exciting project to partner with Choir and Patheos to partner together um, for this great book. Um, but we're also, because of that conversation, we also decided um, that it would be really cool if the Choircast podcast network, which right now is about 10 podcasts, um, could join the Patheos podcast uh, platform. And so we've done that. We've we've launched um, all of our Choircast podcasts now. They're all on the Patheos platform and on their network. So you can go to Patheos, scroll down to the bottom of the page. You'll see a little button that says podcasts. And when you click on that, the first thing it'll pop up is all of these choir podcasts. So um, we're really excited about this partnership. And so I just kind of thought, well, you know, this is another opportunity for Second Cup with Keith, um, hopefully because of this partnership with Patheos, to reach even more people. And I, I, you know, again, I've heard so much feedback. These have been helpful. So I want to continue to do them. And I hope you do find this helpful. And so... Um, uh, before I jump into that, let me just say something as well, that um, I have a brand new book and between the time that I took a break and now I've come back uh, to Second Cup with Keith, uh, I have uh, finished writing and just published. Uh, this is the second book in the Sola trilogy. I'm, a, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking it's going to be a trilogy. Um, so that means the pressure's on now. I got to write the third book. So the first book was Sola Mysterium, came out a year ago celebrating the beautiful uncertainty of everything. And as a follow-up to that, my new book that just came out is Sola Deus. Um, the subtitle is What If God Is All of Us? And very excited. It's performed very well. Got a lot of great feedback about the book. Um, if you love Sola Mysterium or just kind of curious about how we talk about or approach this, the notion, the concept of God, uh, I think Sola Deus would be a yeah, I think you'd love it. I think yeah, that's the feedback I've gotten so far. It really has been helping people as they process their ideas, thinking about how do we approach the idea of God. Cool. All right. So let's jump into the actual episode. Um, and I think this might be a series. At first I was thinking I could just do this in one episode. I think it may take at least two, possibly three more episodes uh, to cover. But we'll just see how we do, right? We'll just start talking. We'll start moving in this direction, and then we'll see how far we get, okay? So I guess the first thing I want to do uh, to kick this off is talk about biblical marriage. Now, the reason I'm wanting to tackle this, again, a couple of reasons. One is, some of you may know, I participated in, in a debate earlier this year uh, in Houston, Texas, with a guy named Dr. James White, and um, that was the topic. The, the The topic of the debate was... What is biblical marriage? And um, I thought the debate went great. Uh, I was very, very pleased um, with the conversation. I said everything I wanted to say, and I brought up all the things I thought were important. And the video has performed extremely well. It's probably it's probably the best performing video I have on YouTube, uh, hands down. So that's been great. And um, so I just thought, you know what? I, this is something that I think it's important to cover here on the Second Cup with Heat podcast, and um, so let's just let's just start off. Um, 
the question, what is biblical marriage? Now, obviously, this is a loaded question. It's not a simple, innocent question coming from someone who says, I don't know what biblical marriage is. Would you please tell me? It, typically, the question, and I will say certainly in that debate, the question was coming from people who pretty much felt like they already knew exactly what it was um, and weren't interested in hearing any other perspectives from anybody else. But of course, that was my job, was to come in and provide, provide a different perspective. So I think the people who typically, you know, want to argue, and again, these are pretty conservative evangelical Christians in America, um, they're the ones very concerned with defining marriage. Um, I guess we'll get into this as we go, because that in itself is something I'd like to uh, explore and question whether or not church or Christians um, have the right or should um, have the, the power to define marriage or not. But anyway, evangelical conservative Christians uh, will say things like biblical marriage is you know, between one man and one woman because the Bible says so. And uh, then that's, of course, coming from Genesis, which we're going to look at in a second. Um, but it also they'll also turn around and say that Jesus defined marriage. Uh, in the New Testament, when he was being asked a question uh, by the Jewish leaders, and they asked him a question um, about if a man divorces his wife and things like that. And they'll say, see, Jesus even calls back to Genesis at the beginning and affirms that it's between a man and a woman. And in and, and this series, we are definitely going to look at that passage and several others uh, to hopefully get a truly biblical picture. Because here's the thing. A truly biblical picture is not comfortable, and it isn't easy, and it isn't simple at all. <laughs> uh, it's very, very complicated and very, very convoluted. By the way, like most of the Bible, the Bible is not of one mind on almost anything, contrary to the what people want you to think. When they say the Bible is clear, uh, I usually just burst out laughing. Uh, because I've read enough and studied enough of the Bible to know that the Bible isn't clear really on almost anything. And certainly not on this topic of marriage. So uh, I have to also give a shout out, by the way, to uh, my dear friend, Dr. Jennifer Bird. Um, she has a podcast, by the way, also uh, on the Quarkast Network. Uh, her and a friend have a podcast called uh, Wild Olive. And I highly recommend that. Check her out. And I think Jennifer Bird has also been doing a series on YouTube or she's been answering Bible questions too. So check that out too. Um, great. She's just so great. She just spoke at Awaken in Nashville. We just did this in Nashville, this event. Um, as I'm recording this, it was about a week ago. And she was phenomenal. I was just so blown away that she would make the trip and what she shared, uh, especially she has a book coming out on this very topic. And I highly recommend when it comes out in a couple of months, go check it out. Go pick up this book about biblical marriage by Jennifer Bird. And she, she was sort of someone who was coaching me when I did this uh, debate. With, with James White. So I spent some time with Jennifer. She sent me her book in advance. I was able to see, you know, some of the arguments she made in her book and incorporate them into my debate prep. And, and some of that's going to bleed into this podcast episode as well. So thank you, Jennifer, uh, for the information that I'm about to share. So um, let me just start off by dropping some bombs and, and kind of blow up this notion of what we think biblical marriage is really all about. Um, biblical marriage, I'm just going to start off by saying this, 
biblical marriage, if we look across the board at how the Bible speaks about marriage, especially in the Old Testament, what we will notice is that biblical marriage was always a contract between two men. I'm going to pause there for effect, and I'm going to say it again. Biblical marriage was always a contract between two men. The father of the man and the father of the woman. In other words, it had very little to do with the woman at all. In other words, the woman had little to no say in the matter. The arrangement was essentially, uh, biblical marriage in the Old Testament is, is, is essentially slavery um, because the man owns the woman. The, the woman is the property of the man. That is the unvarnished language of the Hebrew scriptures in relation to men and women in these married relationships that we see throughout the Bible. The woman was the property of the man. He owned her. She existed to serve him, to bear him children, and to enlarge his legacy. And he could have more than one. Almost immediately in, in Genesis, right after we get the story of Adam and Eve, uh, we have the story of uh, other biblical characters who pop up and they have a wife and a concubine, or they have two wives who happen to be sisters of one another, um, or they have, you know, a few thousand wives, like with Solomon and David, people like that. And here's another bomb I want to drop. And this, this one comes directly from Jennifer Bird. She's the one that I first heard this from and just blew my mind. That when you are reading your English translation of the Bible, and we've talked about this on this podcast many, many times, that the English translations of the Bible that we have in, in our possession, I would say almost without exception, are kind of lying to us. Um, they're not giving us the full meaning of the words, uh, the true Hebrew or Greek words uh, behind the English words that they're translated into. Um, and even if they do give us the accurate word, they very much, very, very often do not give us the cultural context so that the true meaning behind those words or those ideas and concepts. So uh, keep that in mind when I tell you this. There is no Hebrew word for husband. It doesn't exist. There is no word in the Hebrew language for husband. The word is man. It's just a common word for a man, the man. So when you're reading in your English translation, and you read in the Old Testament, and it says anything about a husband, it really means man. It's just man. Substitute the word husband for man. There is also no word in the Hebrew language for wife. Think about that. When you read in the Bible, in the Old Testament scriptures, anything about someone being the wife of someone, it doesn't say wife. It says the woman. And here's the final one. You ready? <laughs> it's a big one. There's no word in the Hebrew language for marriage. The word translated in your English Bible, when you read the Old Testament scriptures coming from the Hebrew, if you read the word marriage, that word isn't marriage. 
That's the common, it's just a word for it to take. Take. And so, if you were to read that a, in the Bible that a husband married a wife, you would actually read that the man took the woman. And that phrase, to take, or in the past tense, took, um, is sexual, right? We tend to think of it nowadays, like, you know, in a marriage ceremony where the father walks his daughter down the aisle and he'll say something, you know, the, the, the priest or the preacher will ask, who gives this uh, woman in marriage, you know? Uh, the father will say, you know, her mother and I do. And then we have this idea that the man would then take the woman to be his wife. And that's just a, you know, that that's what, that's what we think of when we think of to take someone in marriage. I take your hand in marriage. But in the Hebrew sense, when a man took a woman, that was sexual. That was a sexual conquest. Once he had sexually had intercourse with the woman, uh, she was his wife. She was his, essentially. It was like, marking his territory. And I'm sorry to be so crass, but I'm trying to also be very accurate. This is exactly what the language says. I'm not adding anything to it. There's no word for husband, it's man. There's no word for wife, it's woman. There's no word for marriage, it's to take. The man would take the woman. So, um this is this so this because of this because this is exactly what's happening. The man owns the woman. He takes her sexually, physically. He's marked her. She belongs to him. This is why you'll never read anywhere in the Bible anything about something like how a woman took a man or a woman marries a man. A woman wouldn't take a man. That's not how that worked. A woman didn't have the authority to take a man to dominate him sexually. And a woman couldn't own a male as her sexual slave. So again, those concepts just don't exist. So a woman couldn't take a man. A woman couldn't marry a man um, because she couldn't take him. A woman could only be taken. And again, that's fully with the implied sexual connotations intact. And so again, the marriage process in ancient biblical times, again, we're just going to look at what was society like in, in the Old Testament time period with the Jewish people. That's biblical, right? What's more biblical than that? If we go and look at that, what we'll see is that this was not a religious or sacred um, process or ceremony or anything like that. I mean, go and look. No one goes to the temple. No one goes to the priest and says, hey, would you officiate or, or witness or, you know, um, you know, authorize the the union between this man and this woman. No, not at all. It, it was seriously like again, it was a it was a an arrangement. It was a contract between two men: the father of the man, the father of the woman. So you know, you didn't consult a priest for that. You didn't go to the temple for that or the tabernacle for that. Um. And so, yeah, it, it wasn't something that they biblically. In biblical times, they didn't think of marriage as something that the quote-unquote church or the pastor or the priest or the religious leaders had any say in whatsoever. It was it was as, um, 
I guess I would say it's almost, it was about as common as sort of like if one neighbor was selling a car to a guy across the street, right? If you've got a car and you have a for sale sign in it, one of your neighbors sees the sign and comes over and knocks on the door. Hey, I don't want to buy that car from you. Okay, great. Well, you sign it. You might get it notarized. You don't call your pastor. You don't, you don't go to your church, right? And that, so this is, this is what I'm talking about. This is what it was like. That is biblical marriage. That's what it looked like. So, um, yeah, uh, I'm going to read a quote here. So in my process of getting ready for the debate, um, not only did I reach out to, the, to um, Dr. Jennifer Bird, um, I also reached out to my favorite theologian, David Bentley Hart, and um, I asked him, you know, about sort of the, the historical and biblical concepts of marriage and, you know, any, any, any input he could give to me on this. And so here's, I'm going to just read a quote. It's, um, it's about two and a half paragraphs. Okay. So this is what David Bentley Hart uh, wrote back to me when I was asking him, getting ready for the debate about biblical marriage. He said, quote, there was no concept of sacramental marriage in either Old or New Testament. However, marriage consisted in a father consenting to give his daughter to a certain man, which is why the father still walks his daughter down the aisle and why the minister asks who gives this woman to be wed, followed by a feast, and the most important part, consummation. That was it. Later in history, a blessing was added, and slowly the church inserted itself into the proceedings, first by allowing very respectable people to pronounce their vows publicly during a Eucharist, and then by demanding the right to solemnize the vows for anyone who wanted to be in good standing with the church. And finally, in the early modern period, demanding that solemnization became necessary for sacramental marriage. But in the Bible, marriage was still, quote, here's my daughter, here's a dowry paid to you so that you'll take her off my hands. The bedroom is that way, close quote. So simply put, biblical marriage was like buying something from your neighbor's garage sale. And I'm sorry for how that sounds, but that is the most accurate description of how things really were. So Lel, we've talked about the Old Testament a little bit on marriage and things like that. Let's look at sort of the Christian side of things. Um, marriage wasn't made a sacrament. What do I mean by that? I mean, it wasn't something that the church was directly involved in where the church had to officiate it, you know, authenticate it, bless it, certify it, all of that, right? Sacraments are things like, um, you know, taking the Eucharist, what we call sometimes in the Protestant church, you know, communion, things like that. Um, so church, uh, sorry, the, so marriage wasn't made a sacrament until the 1500s. Now we all know, <laughs> if nothing else from listening to this podcast, a lot of things happened in the 1500s, didn't it? Right. Uh, we know that was the Protestant Reformation. We know that was John Calvin, uh, Martin Luther. All right. So this is the, this is the, a big shift and a big break in Christian, uh, the development of Christianity uh, as we know it in modern Christianity. So prior to the 1500s, Christians didn't think about marriage as something the church had to necessarily bless or regulate or define. So the church didn't have the right to define marriage. It was merely, as I said, an arrangement between two families that took place in somebody's house maybe in their backyard. You didn't have a priest officiating or a pastor or a religious figure 
a bishop, any Christian leaders. Now think about it. Many of us can't imagine that, right? We cannot imagine that for 1,500 years, Christians got married and they didn't do it in a church. They didn't go to their pastor or their priest or their bishop. Yeah, but that's the case. That's the truth. That, that's a real shock to many people, right? Uh, it was essentially a secular, you know, it was a business deal. It was a financial arrangement. Um, and again, it always favored the man. Um, the man was essentially uh, owning the woman, right? Sorry to say. So this is why you won't find any instructions in the Bible for how to perform a marriage ceremony or even just an example of it. There is no example of somebody, oh, this is how they got married. This is what happened, right? It'll just tell you, matter of factly, the man took the woman, which means literally money changed hands. He took the woman into the tent. Bada bing, bada boom, yada, yada, yada. And there you go. They were married, quote unquote. Um, so yeah, it's why you don't you don't read any beautiful stories, not only about the wedding of Abraham and Sarah or Jacob and Rachel or any other biblical characters. Um, you know, you just read a sentence like Moses took Zipporah as his woman. As his woman, not wife. You might read it might say wife in your Bible, but again, remember it doesn't say wife, it says woman. Moses took Zipporah as his woman. That's it. So Biblical marriage wasn't much more than that. A man took a woman, she became his, she bears children, and she'd better bear children because if she doesn't, it's a shame to her. Okay, and it's a shame to the man, right? Because he's he's invested in this woman, he paid money, or his father paid money or something, and she doesn't produce, right? Now he's got to get another one. Now he's got to take care of two women um, to hopefully get some kids, right? It's all seen from the man's perspective. Again, sorry to say, but that's, that's kind of the way it worked. So here's the thing, knowing all of that, knowing this is what the Bible says about marriage. Yes. At the beginning, you've got this, you know, Adam and Eve thing, but immediately after that, you have Abraham and Sarah and her handmaid, and then you have, you know, Jacob with uh, the two sisters, you know, uh, you have David with his wives and his concubines, Solomon with his ridiculous number of wives and concubines. Um, you have, you have also these kind of laws where, you know, if your brother is married and he dies and he didn't have any kids, your duty is to go have sex with, with your sister-in-law. Yep. You got to do it. You got, I mean, you're expected to do that. You'd be in trouble if you didn't immediately go in there and like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to impregnate my dead brother's wife. Um, you're not going to ask her permission. You're not going to say, hey, is that okay with you? Would that be all right? Nope. Nope. You just do it. So anyway, knowing all of this weirdness, let's be honest. It's a little weird, isn't it? It's not what you think of typically when people talk about Biblical marriage, the Bible says, right? Um, so again, knowing all that, I feel like it's really ironic that Christians today are freaking out that 
people want to challenge their definition of marriage, right? Their, their definition of quote unquote biblical marriage as the ideal example of what marriage is supposed to be. I don't know about you, when I look at biblical marriage and I see what we just talked about, uh, that's pretty barbaric. I don't know about you. I don't, I don't want anything to do with a biblical marriage. Uh, if biblical marriage is, is truly what it says in the Bible, then that means women have no voice. Men have all the power. Divorce is at the whim of the man. The woman has no right to, you know, divorce the husband. She's his property. So marriage, biblical marriage, really was no more than domestic slavery. I hate to say it. So again, that may be shocking, may make you upset, but again, this is not my opinion. Um, I think when you can clearly see what biblical marriage is, you see it's not so great, right? Um, but you know, like if you think that all of that stuff we just talked about was, well, no, God ordained it. God commanded it. God expected it. Um, then they, then it's sort of like, well, that's okay. It's acceptable because, you know, it's in the Bible and that it means God was okay with that. Whereas I'm reaching a place where I've said, well, you know what? Okay. Yeah. I can acknowledge that people in biblical times, they really did believe that this was how God wanted things to be. Sure. And there are biblical literalists out there who would take an extra step and say um, that people in biblical times believed this was from God and therefore it must have been from God because, hey, they wrote it down in this book that we later on call the Bible. But there's a difference between realizing that, yes, people in the Bible did believe certain things and did behave certain ways without assuming that those things that they believed and did were automatically directed by, endorsed by, and commanded by God. Right? Like I would say, you know, is it a coincidence that we look at this very strongly patriarchal society and they happen to worship a God who is male and who gives commands that favor men? Um, that this male-dominated community somehow believes in a God that provides an adultery test that ends in a miscarriage or uh, gives provisions for soldiers in battle to take young, the youngest, prettiest girls captives as sex slaves? It, is that a shock? Are we surprised? Right? Like, look at this. Look at this um, male-dominated patriarchal society. Oh, look, their God is male. Their God devalues women. And their God, you know, gives commands that strongly favor things that these men kind of just want to do anyway. Huh. Are you shocked? <laughs> you shouldn't be, right? No, to me, it's obvious that the God that is described in this way, he mirrors the mindset of those people at that time. So for me, the idea of in 2023, as I'm recording this, that some people want us to turn back to Leviticus and impose these primitive ideas about God and about marriage and about women and about homosexuality and about all these other things 
and impose all that on us today, that is absolutely absurd. And I want to say backwards and barbaric. So this nonsensical desire to force everyone to return to a biblical standard of living is really troubling to me. It's a huge red flag. And especially when you realize that Jewish rabbis and other practicing Jews today don't run around trying to get everyone to return to living under these biblical standards. So why are Christians doing this? Think about that. It's not Jewish rabbis running around telling everybody, it says in Leviticus, everybody, we've got to go back to this standard of biblical marriage, you know, because, oh, it says right here. No, it's Christians doing that. So, again, well, I know why, because Christians have reached a place, very sadly, very unfortunately, since the 1500s, and it's gotten worse since the 1500s at the Protestant Reformation, um, where the Bible has kind of become the third person of the Trinity. We talked about this in previous episodes. Um, so they kind of made the Bible an idol. And then they really want to use it to control the rest of us in every possible way. They want us to dress biblically. They want us to legislate biblically. They want to turn to the Ten Commandments or to Leviticus and start imposing laws on us in, in modern times because, well, the Bible says. They want us to discriminate biblically. And frankly, what really scares me is we are living in a time when there are many Christians, certainly in America, who want us to replace the Constitution with the Bible, and especially this stuff that they're reading in Leviticus, except for the parts about shrimp and lobster and, cheese and bacon cheeseburgers, right? They still like that. Come on, we're still Americans here, right? We still love uh, the bacon cheeseburger. We still love, you know, going shrimp and crab legs and lobster and all that kind of stuff. So let's not get crazy. Yeah, we got to draw the line somewhere. That that's that part we can leave out. You know, maybe mixing mixing threads, textiles, you know, cotton and wool or whatever. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But come on, on the rest of it, we want to we want to impose this. You know, we've seen things like The Handmaid's Tale. If you haven't seen that show, by the way, you should watch it. It's it's brutal, but it is a, it is a it is a great example, like a cautionary tale of like this is where we could end up tomorrow. Right? The things that have happened with the Supreme Court lately, the things that are going on in politics, the things that are going on at the at the uh, state level where governors are starting to act like dictators and turning back the clock, sending us back to the 1940s or 50s, uh, repealing human rights legislation and all this kind of stuff. Again, all of this is based on this kind of biblicism, this literalism of the Bible uh, to impose a Christian theocracy in our country. This is why I wrote my very first book that I published with Choir, Jesus Untangled, uh, Crucifying Our Politics to Pledge Allegiance to the Lamb. I, in that book, I did my best to document how we got here, um, to expose how people are using politics and, and religion, Christianity specifically, to advance these political agendas that they have. If you haven't read that book, I, I strongly recommend you check it out. Um, because when I wrote that book, Gosh, now what's it been? Seven years ago? Something like that? Seven, eight years ago? Um, I was warning about the dangers of what might happen if we ever were to reach a place 
that, you know, Christian nationalism and, and Christian theocracy might become a reality. And guess what? That wasn't science fiction. <laughs> That's happening right now. I'm watching it unfold in front of me. We all are. And it's frankly terrifying. And, you know, really at the bottom of this whole thing is this idea of of even asking the question, what is biblical marriage? As if, as if if something is biblical, it's good. To say it's biblical means it's it's sanctified, it's holy, it's good, it's right. That's the underlying assumption in the question when people ask the question, is this biblical? Or, you know, do we have do we have a biblical idea of marriage? The the subtext there when they use the word biblical is is it godly? Is it is it good? Is it right? And as I've said many times, there are many things that are biblical that are not good and not not right and not not godly. Right? So genocide is biblical. Slavery is biblical. Polygamy is biblical. Patriarchy, very biblical. So when we say things are biblical, um, what we're talking about is that it's it's the people that are biblical, what they're saying is, you know, they want to use the Bible to justify those things I just talked about. They have done that in the past. We can see the the the, the disaster that it was when they did that. And uh, and we see it happening again right now. People are using the Bible to justify genocide, patriarchy, slavery, racism, polygamy, Christian nationalism. And that's the point. They are not following Christ. They're not following Jesus. They're not following the Sermon on the Mount. They don't want the Sermon on the Mount posted anywhere. They want the Ten Commandments posted. And they want something that's quote-unquote biblical. But just because something is biblical does not mean it's Christ-like. Sad to say. Because none of those things I just mentioned are Christ-like. Genocide is not Christ-like. Slavery is not Christ-like. Racism is not Christ-like. Christian nationalism, patriarchy, polygamy, none of those things are Christ-like. Homophobia, those, that is not Christ-like. And so, I guess in, in closing, we're not called to follow the Bible. You know that? You, do you know that? Do I need to remind you of that? The Bible never tells us to follow the Bible, ever. The Bible never points to itself. The Bible always points us to Christ. Biblical Christians, however, no, they do not follow Christ. They follow the Bible, and they are not shy about it. They're not even trying to follow Jesus. And they don't want to have that conversation that I, that I just mentioned, that certain things are biblical but are not Christ-like. They, that's the last thing they want to talk about. So let's just leave it at this uh, as we close this. And I think I will definitely do a, uh, a series of podcast episodes on this because there's definitely enough to talk about. Um, yeah, so, so in closing, biblical marriages aren't anything to aspire to. Uh, they're nothing, certainly nothing any of us today should want to implement. The idea of men owning women, taking them, owning them as property. Um, yeah, that, that's not something any of us should should aspire to. Uh, it's, and biblical marriage, if we really look at it with clear and open eyes, is is more oppressive than anyone who says they are following Christ would ever want to participate in. 
So I just say it. Women are not the property of men. Wives are not the slaves of their husbands. Anyone who wants you to get you to return to this biblical standard of marriage is trying to subjugate women. Bottom line, that's it. And take us back to basically Stone Age practices of male-dominated societies. And that's the last thing I would ever want. And as we're going to go through this series too, what we'll talk about, we haven't really touched on it too much here in this episode, but it certainly came up in that debate I was in with Dr. James White. Um, it's not just defining, you know, marriage between a man and a woman. Um, it's also wanting to deny the right of marriage to same-sex couples. And so there is a, a whole huge, um, it's not even subtle. I mean, it's it's kind of right out in front. This whole debate about biblical marriage is something that the church wants to take up and, and rally people around it um, because they feel threatened by the fact that it's now legal for same-sex couples to be married. And you would think, why would they care? Why would, what does it matter to them? Uh, well, it matters to them because they want to be the ones in charge, and their ultimate goal is to create a society, a theocracy, Built around the Bible, not around the Constitution or any other rule of law. Built totally around the Bible. And that should scare the crap out of you. <laughs> it scares the crap out of me. Anyway, so thank you for listening. Um, again, I just thank all of you for supporting the podcast and uh, for listening. Uh, if you did like this podcast, would you rate it and review it? Would you share it with somebody? If you know somebody as you're listening to this podcast, you say, you know what? I have a friend who really needs to hear what Keith just talked about here. And especially if they need to hear the things I'm going to talk about in the upcoming, as we continue this conversation uh, in the series coming up about biblical marriage, um, you know, please share it with them. I'd appreciate that. Uh, if you don't already, follow me on Facebook. I'm also on Twitter and on Instagram. I also have a channel on YouTube you can check out. And of course, my blog is keithjiles.com over on Patheos. My books are on Amazon. My brand new book, Soledeos, What If God Is All of Us, is available now on Amazon. You can check that out on Kindle and paperback. And the Audible hopefully is coming very soon, hopefully in a couple of months. That'll be available. And um, yeah, I'm glad to be back, guys. I really am. I've missed doing these podcasts. So happy to say uh, that we can all sit down and have a second cup with Keith. And I thank you for having this time uh, sitting down and listening to me over my second cup uh, talk about these things. All right. Take care. God bless. And we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye.